Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, author Patrice Gopo reads from and discusses her book, All the Colors We Will See. Reflections on Barriers, Brokenness, and Finding Our Way, a Barnes & Noble Fall 2018 Discover Great New Writers Selection. Drawing on her experience as the child of Jamaican immigrants, born and raised in Anchorage, Alaska, Patrice enjoys exploring issues of race, immigration, and belonging. She believes that the personal essay is an effective method for uncovering deeper thoughts, causes, and concerns that lie beneath your lived experience. In this show, we highlight essays that speak to family history, black role models, degrees of blackness, and more, and we explore the writing of personal essay. We start with Patrice reading an excerpt from her essay, What Remains. Just off Central Avenue, they're tearing down Eastland Mall, the dead mall as I like to call it. Bulldozers and cranes cluster near broken concrete and piles of rubble. In the beginning, I saw the front of the building removed, the insides exposed like a little girl's dollhouse. As the rubble grew, I wondered if between the dust and crushed walls, a lone hanger could be found, a pair of new shoes, or perhaps a going-out-of-business sign. Do dead malls hold on to any of that? Mommy, what are they doing? My preschool-aged daughter asks from the back seat. My throat tightens. In an uncharacteristic, neutral voice, I explain the demolition of the empty building and the city's desire for something new. Given Sakai's keen sense of observation, I wonder if she notices how I stare when we drive this block of Central. How can I explain to her my desire to stop the car and bury my head in my hands when I can't even explain this to myself? Who cries over a mall? As a recent arrival to Charlotte, I never knew the dead mall when it was alive with the hum of eager shoppers and squalling children. I never walked through the stores and touched soft fabrics or sifted through piles of sale CDs. I never sipped lemonade while middle schoolers exchanged first kisses just beyond the food court. I don't know what it was to circle and circle around the bright green leaves in search of an elusive parking spot. Still, I keep driving by, watching the demolition of a mall I never knew. A few more weeks and the dead mall will be a wasteland of concrete. Hundreds and thousands of parallel and perpendicular lines will provide parking for nothing, not even an abandoned building. Patrice Gopo is a firm believer in the power of personal narratives to create pathways of connection 
and understanding in society. Her essays have appeared in a variety of publications, including Catapult, Creative Nonfiction, Gulf Coast, Full Grown People, and online in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Her radio commentaries have appeared on Charlotte, North Carolina's NPR station, WFAE 90.7. Her work has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize, and she's the recipient of several regional artists' project grants in the 2017-2018 North Carolina Arts Council Artist Fellowship. When Patrice is not writing and reflecting about her own journey, she teaches and speaks about the importance of story. Both Charlotte and North Carolina have had a profound impact on her writing life, and she's thrilled to share that fact with others. She hopes that her essay collection featured on the show today will inspire readers to both listen to other people's stories and know their own. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's Digital Branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcast. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So, Patrice, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so one of the themes in the book that, uh, that you're reading from today, All the Colors We Will See, um, explores this concept of home. So mm. how did you sort of come to call Charlotte home, and what was the path to get here? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I feel is very uh, non-direct. So I was born in Anchorage, Alaska. I am the child of Jamaican immigrants, and I was born and raised in Anchorage, Alaska. And I left for college when I was just about 18, and I went to uh, Carnegie Mellon in Pennsylvania. And then after that, I ended up moving to upstate New York for a couple of years, where I worked for Eastman Kodak as a chemical engineer. So my background is in engineering. And we're going to read about that before the show's over. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about that, uh, which is, I know, it's not so typical that you think of a writer having been an engineer. But it's not going to be boring. We're going to make it interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So... um, Anyway, so I did that for a couple years, and then I went to graduate school, and I went to get my MBA and Master's of Public Policy because I was interested in working with under-resourced communities and uh, working with addressing issues of material poverty, and I wanted to work with economic and community development projects. And that eventually took that work eventually took me to South Africa, to Cape Town, where I was working with women, helping them start small businesses in the townships in Cape Town. And during that time, I met the guy that I would end up marrying. He's a man from Zimbabwe, and we started our life in Cape Town. And my first child was born in Cape Town. And shortly after my first child was born in Cape Town, I was thinking about how my mother was very far away in Alaska, and I was here in Cape Town. And So I, you're just going to get a little bit closer, right? That was the point, was that okay. I wanted to come back to the States because it was far. I mean, Anchorage and Cape Town, that is almost halfway around the world between those two points. And so we decided, yes, let's move to the States. And at the time, my husband, Nyasha, he was working for a company that had an office in Charlotte. And we had never, neither of us had ever been to Charlotte. And we thought, well, let's just try it. We'll just, on a whim, go and see if we like it. And that was almost nine years ago. So Uh, we've been here ever since. So do you see home as a uh, physical place or something more? 
So I will say it's an interesting question, and I feel like this is one I delve into a lot in my work. And I actually wrote a piece, an essay for uh, the newspaper, the local newspaper in Rochester a couple years ago because I had a writing residency up in Rochester and was kind of one of the first times I'd been back since I left living in upstate New York and working for Eastman Kodak. And there was this moment as I was there where I felt this deep sense of familiarity for this place that I had lived for just a couple years that I realized this place is still part of me too. And I think as I was there reflecting on the fact that I still know street names there, I recognize uh different buildings and yet a lot has changed that the idea of home I don't know if it's necessarily just a an actual physical location but I like to think of home as maybe being the accumulation of all the places we've ever lived all the places that have ever touched us in some capacity that these create my own robust definition of what it feels like to be home and so because of that I feel like Charlotte certainly is another home for me. I think Anchorage is my first home, but I think Charlotte certainly is another place. And I even say that in uh, the in the bio for my book, the very last couple li lines that says she lives with her family in North Carolina, a place she has recently begun to consider another home. Okay, great. Well, you're also an essayist. We're going to talk a lot about essay writing during during this as we also feature your writing. Do you find that Charlotte uh, provides a lot of good fodder for an essayist? I think I will say this. I feel as long as we are people who have our eyes looking around or we are observing in some other fashion, that we are aware of our different senses, that we are being people who are observant, whether it is through hearing, whether it is through seeing, whether it is through feeling, smelling. I'm going to have missed a sense there. But um, <laughs> the point is, I think Charlotte certainly contributes to having things to write about, but I believe I could be living anywhere and having things to write about because I think one of the keys to being an essayist is to be an observant human being. And so I feel like that is what I bring to the writing. Well, let's talk about uh, this collection for just a minute. Uh, your book, All the Colors We Will See, it's a collection of personal essays. It's your life experiences mingled with your thoughts about the world around mm -hmm. you. Absolutely. Uh, how many years of your life do you cover in the book? I cover from even before I was born. So I consider <laughs> elements related to my parents in okay. these right. pieces. Okay. And I would say the final essay concludes around 2016. So that would be the bulk of my life. Yeah, and some of these are you know moments about your family and different stories there. But you also tackle... Some difficult topics like, um, you know, being a black person, hair, if that can be a difficult topic, interracial marriage, mm -hmm. intercultural marriage, citizenship, divorce, uh, mm -hmm. all kinds of things. Is it difficult to tackle those kind of topics uh, or is that what an essayist is supposed to do? So I will say for myself, I feel like the topics that I consider in the books are things that are part of my particular story. And so as I was writing this book, I had an urgency to tell the stories of my life. And so in that regard, would I say that it was difficult to write about some of these topics? I, I don't know if that would be the term I would use to describe it because of that urgency that I needed to get these topics written. I think certainly there were topics I consider that may not have been as easy to write about as others. So I think particularly when I think about the um, 
I think it's the second to last essay in the book. It concerns living in Charlotte in the aftermath aftermath of the Charleston massacre. That was not a simple essay for me to write because I, I think it raised, it brought to the surface many feelings of fear and anger that I, I am living with, uh, being a black woman, thinking about raising black children, being part of a black family. Uh, and so that wasn't necessarily an easy essay to write, but I think there was a sense of urgency that was attached to that as I was writing that I felt like these are words I need to get out. These are things that I need to say. So I think in that regard, that really helps with that uh, thinking about maybe tackling topics that aren't necessarily as simple and straightforward. There have been other shootings, too many to count, that are uh, in the news. You explored African Americans being victims of gunshots in an essay called For My Husband Driving Down a Mountain. Yes. Okay. You want to set that up just a bit before you read this little segment from the end? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I can talk a little bit about it. So this essay is super short. It is the shortest essay in the book. It's I think it's under 500 words. And I wrote it in the summer of 2016. Uh, yeah, the summer of 2016. And so there had been a string of shootings of unarmed black men by police officers. And in this particular week, uh, Philando Castile in St. Paul and Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, uh, they had both died during these incidents. And I, I was just writing about what it felt like to be married to a black man in this time in our nation's history uh, when these shootings are receiving such attention, not that I think they haven't existed before, but just recognizing that they are receiving a level of attention that perhaps we have not seen at other points in our history. And so this is the piece that came from that. And I am just writing about what it is to watch him drive away, not knowing what could possibly happen to him on the road. So I will just read this little section from the very end of that particular essay. The headlines say our country is in crisis. And I think about all that smolders and the temperatures that rise with the weariness of these recent days. After Philando Castile's death in St. Paul and Alton Sterling's in Baton Rouge, after your car pulled away, I called out goodbye to you. I can't remember if I took my palm to my lips and gifted you a kiss across the empty space, but I tell myself that you caught all that I wanted to say. Please, my love, keep your hands on the wheel, your registration close, keep your speed under the limit, and go straight home. I watched your car's dusty bumper shrinking out of sight, the start of your spiral down that mountain, your return to the heat of our burning unknown. All I could do was reach out my open hand and wave. So, Patrice, you mentioned Philandra Castile and Alton Sterling. Um, both young, in their 30s, um, African-Americans shot by police officers, one at a traffic stop, um, one elsewhere. There was a lot of controversy around in the shootings, you know, issues about whether it's racing motivated, whether it's fear about having a gun, whether it's a combination of both. You know, as you think about all that and the fear that comes from that, um, I mean, what, what, do you, what do you do? I mean, I've, I've, I'm listening to you read this. What do you do to provide comfort? You know, do you tell yourself, Times are going to change. You tell yourself there's hope. What do you, what do, you do in those moments besides write, of course? <laughs> well, I think writing is a great 
uh, step into that for us to think about what is actually happening in our society. And that is one thing I, I feel like I hope in some way my words that I write speak in to the society in which we live, that there's this sense of uh, maybe exposing what is there that maybe not everyone is seeing. I, I feel like with my words, I have the opportunity to, on one hand, affirm the experience of people like myself, people who, black people in this country, and what it is that we might be experiencing. I feel like that happens across the book. But at the same time, I also feel like the power of the words is that they also invite others who do not share these experiences to consider what it might be like to be a black person in our country and to be this particular black person in this country. I want to be very careful of saying that my experience is something we can just extend to the whole of black America. I am living one particular experience and certainly there may be overlap with others who may be living experiences, but at the same time, I don't want to say that this is the only story that we can tell. So, so I feel like writing actually is a very important way in which we step into what might be happening in our world and in our society. I think you asked about comfort and hope, and I have to say, I don't necessarily feel like those are emotions that I am trying to find, um, that I'm trying to find a sense of comfort, that I'm trying to find a sense of hope, or that I'm even trying to offer comfort or offer hope to others through my words. I, I think we are complicated people, and there are times in which I do maybe feel hopeful for change, and then there are times in which I sometimes wonder, could we ever actually fix the problems around race in our country. And I'll just be honest, I think that from time to time. I recently read uh, the New York Times put out a publication called The 1619 Project, and it basically examines our country's history from the beginning of slavery and the slave trade in this country and looks at the ways in which race has impacted so many elements um, in the way in which our society works. and. There was this moment where I was sitting there thinking about Reconstruction, the time after the Civil War, and how, in a way, I felt as though there was an opportunity to actually remedy a past evil, that that maybe in that moment we could have stopped and remedied what had been so wrong about our history and the ways in which we created this racial hierarchy in our country. And... I was thinking, and that was in the 1870s, and here we are now, and I sat there thinking, I don't know that perhaps we've almost missed that opportunity. So I don't know. I'm not sure that I'm always hopeful, and right. yet sometimes I might be. Yeah. Well, so. that, that kind of is a good transition to the tagline you use for your book, you, you know, reflections on barriers, brokenness, and finding our way home. Um, are these your personal barriers um, you're talking about, things that are personally broken in your past, uh, your efforts to find your way home, however you define it? Mm -hmm. or, or is it the world, a larger world around you, or both? What is it? Yeah, so I think that's a great question as well. And, and I'll just say it's reflections on barriers, brokenness, and finding our way. So I do know there's a lot around home in there, but that's actually not fully part of the subtitle. Oh, you're right. And I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I had, no, home, had home on my mind. Yeah, so. <laughs> and I absolutely understand. I think it's a an easy uh, thing to think could be part of it. But 
I feel as though when I think about that idea of finding my way, it is that sense of trying to find my way in the sense of place, but also in the sense of how I am interacting in this society that really has a lot of brokenness that's part of it. So I think when you think about brokenness, that extends to elements in my own life. So my own challenges that I might experience or things that I've gone through personally. But I also think there is a uh, a look at what has happened in society. There is a, a consideration of the broken ways we interact in society. So I know you mentioned earlier, I write about hair. And part of the reason I write about hair is because I feel like the standards around hair in this country are in many ways very screwed up that we have created hierarchy even in the ways we evaluate hair. And that's not just impacting me, that's impacting our society and the ways in which people who look like me enter into how they um, grow to appreciate themselves, grow to love themselves. And so so in that regard, I feel like this is brokenness that I might experience, but brokenness that we, we as a society must confront and deal with if we are actually going to make fundamental shifts towards positive change. Mm-hmm. So- and, and there is a nice essay in here about hair, and I commend it to the to the listeners to, to read. We can't obviously read every essay that's in here. <laughs> but, Absolutely. Uh, but let's circle back to a minute to the dead mall because you have a line in there, you know, who cries over a dead mall? Oh, right. You yeah. Know, and, and, you know, as you go on in this essay, that was just something that ignited something in your memory about your past. You weren't mm-hmm. crying about the dead mall. You were crying about something else that was that had died in your past, right? Right. Your, the, the marriage between your parents, right? right exactly. Yeah. But the connection, which I found interesting, was that you remembered by looking at the mall that you and your family had taken the last portrait together mm-hmm. at a mall where mm-hmm. you lived before they were divorced. Right. And now you're looking at this mall again, and and that brings that memory back. Right. right? So um, does this happen to you often when you're driving down and you see something and it sparks this memory it's kind of like a song that gets played on the radio it takes you back in time yeah right so you know I think it's interesting that's one thing I was saying earlier when you were asking if Charlotte has you know is a great place to be writing essays and I was saying I think truthfully the big thing about writing essays is you can write them anywhere but part of it is being aware trying to be observant of the environment around you and I think also being a person who is allowing their mind to go places to make connections between the seemingly disconnected. I think that's an important aspect that can really help in the writing, really can help material coming to the surface. So when I think about that particular essay, the way I started writing about it was really about the destruction of Eastland Mall. Yes, yeah, Charlotte's appetite for destroying old buildings. Right? Well, I don't know if I was talking writing about that, but I think that would certainly be another interesting thing that we could consider as well. Yeah, but yeah. I was just really focused in on this idea of this mall and how I had passed it for so long, and now it's being torn down mm. in a matter of I don't know weeks, months, and um, and as I wrote out that, as I did this free write on this piece, there was one line in there. That was that mentioned taking this photo in my dead mall. That I there's a dead mall in Anchorage, Alaska, where I grew up, and this is where my family took this last photograph of um, our family. And I I just remember 
thinking, actually, I think even someone else pointed it out to me that this is an interesting connection. Yeah, and you, and you, brought it, you brought it home too, I found interesting. You brought it home at the end by talking about a family portrait that your current family yes, took and exactly. your daughter picking out the one she liked and then where you're going to put it. And you didn't say it and go forward, but I'm thinking you're wondering what will this portrait look like 20, 30 years from right. now? Right. Yeah. I think that's definitely. And so that for me is the sense of being a person who is making connections. Because in the end, when I think about this essay, really what it speaks to me is this idea of structures we think will last in society and what happens when those structures don't last. So a mall doesn't end up staying um, and a marriage doesn't end up staying. And yet here I am. And you almost wonder, should we feel hopeful for this narrator? Myself, I'm the narrator, <laughs> but I will sometimes talk about myself in the third yeah. person like that. Yeah. Do we feel hopeful for this narrator or do we not? Or do we just recognize that there is a lot that is uncertain about life? And mm -hmm. so I think that all of that was what I had hoped to convey in that particular essay. So in a way, it is an essay about my parents' marriage and that it's not anymore, that they're no longer married. But I actually feel like even more profoundly, it's an essay about my own marriage mm. and what I hope will happen in the context of my marriage. The concept of hope might be a good transition here to uh, a time in your life when you were trying to decide what you're going to do. Um, and you chose because of your skill with uh, science to, <laughs> to go into this yeah. field that few you know, African-American women were right. getting into, and, mm -hmm. and it allowed you to become a role model. You've got a little piece here that you're going to read, and we're going to talk about this whole idea of a role model in a second. But do you want to, anything you want to say to set this up before you read it uh, you, in terms of your, to tell us what your career was? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, my undergraduate degree is in chemical engineering, and I worked as a chemical engineer, as I said a little bit earlier, for a couple of years at Eastman Kodak. So that that's my background. I, mm. At the same time, I also had a minor in business administration. So definitely a career decision that is far from what I do today. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a good contrast. All right, let's, let's pick it up then with the, uh, with the essay. Okay. The end was inevitable. The exact time, not so certain. Those calculus problems and chemical reactions had brought me to a comfortable, firm, and steady, predictably certain trance one that aligned well with exact definitions, right answers, periodic tables, and known expectations for left brain degrees. But what I longed for was a sky split open to become a scholar of more. The engineering, the distillation columns, the steam tables, these were only beginnings, places where one dips in a toe and tests the water. For a moment, there is a twinkle of recognition a whisper of familiarity. Then the haze passes, the clouds separate, and what became clear for me was that here was not the place, but here carried with it the precise weight of inexplicable richness. And so what I want to say to the little girls I once tutored while I was in college and to the ones who sat with me in the basement of a church and the ones who stopped at my table and listened to me explain the primary colors of light to them and the young ones who nodded their heads when I compared engineering to baking cookies and finding a way to make cookies not just for their families but for a whole city. To those girls who looked at me, looked at my complexion, and saw a picture of what they could become. 
and maybe even more so to the girls who never saw me, heard me, and thus never imagined. To all of you, what I want to say is, I'm sorry I left. I'm sorry I didn't stay. I was born into this particular moment in time in this particular place, not 40 years before or 400 years before, not 40 years after or 400 years after, but now. And at this particular moment in time, in this particular place, for women and girls like me, I recognize my pursuits as not divorced from the eyes of others looking for an example of what they might become. But now I wonder if perhaps searching for a sky split open was never about leaving or remaining. Maybe it was always about embracing the ability to change and transform, to flourish with the fullness of the freedom to pursue something more. So if I'm sorry I left, then I must also be thankful I didn't stay. So Patrice, as I was reading this uh, essay, uh, and thinking about the podcast, I just had a thought. Uh, do, you, do you still reflect on this decision as to whether or not uh, it was the right decision for you? I do. Yeah. I Yeah. I So I will say this. This is something I do circle back to in my head from time to time. And sometimes even in conversation, even just this past week, I was talking to someone about my decision to leave chemical engineering. So that, that little section, I, I should have set it up a little bit more, but th I'm talking about kind of the moment in which I decide that I'm going to leave engineering and pursue other things. And Yes, it's something I come back to, especially now I have a daughter who is moving into the middle school years, and I do think about just the example I could set for her, for her friends, being this black woman in engineering, and I sometimes think, would that have been maybe a better way to serve my community? Which I think is a question that a lot of people who may not... Uh, be a black woman, be a woman of color, they may not necessarily think about some of those things that sometimes our choices are also tied into the example we might set for the community of others like us, especially if there's an is an absence of those types of role models. So I do think that my choices and decisions around what I do in life, they are about me and my passions, but they're also about what might actually positively influence others who are looking towards me for ideas about what they can be. Now, I will say this. I think there is something very profound about being a woman, being a black woman, and stepping into the fields that were calling to me, stepping into the places that were calling to me, and not necessarily feeling like I needed to be defined by the standards that others would set for me. And I think there's something very powerful about that too. So in that way, I don't particularly regret that I left, but at the same time, I think there's just this part of me that sometimes says, I wonder what life would have been like if I had ended up moving in that direction too. And I think it just probably would have been a different life, not a better life or a worse life, but just a different life. And I'm guessing a chemical engineer probably makes more than an essayist. <laughs> well, certainly, I guess maybe on the financial front, there might be some differences yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, if you're trying to advise somebody on a career or whatever, I, right, maybe I you could be a chemical engineer that writes essays. I, right. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think yeah. that's absolutely an interesting point to consider. And even yeah. a conversation I was having with someone last week I was talking about this very idea of 
you know, the reality of income and how that does impact the ways in which we make decisions and the fact that within the context of our society, some are in positions where they don't have to think about that reality as much as others and how it creates a way, a system in which not everyone actually has equal opportunity to pursue passions. So Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a complicated question, a complicated thing to consider, but it's important that we bring those things to the surface. And I, uh, I think for myself, if I were to sit down with a group of high schoolers and give them career advice, would I necessarily suggest to them that they become a writer? I'm not necessarily convinced. I think I would probably default more to what you were saying that maybe do both kind of thing. Not that we want to abandon our passions, but that there's also significant value in being employable too. All right. Well, good stuff. Listeners, when we come back, uh, we're going to dive into the uh, uh, writing life of Patrice. We're also going to talk about uh, essay writing. We're going to have a couple more reads, including one on degrees of blackness and being me. So stay with us. Hey listeners, I'm here with Sam Poehler, Member Experience Manager with Advent Coworking, a co-working space in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte, whose mission is to create an environment where its members are productive, grow, and collaborate. It's also where I hang out with Charlotte Reese Podcast, and I've made it the home of the podcast, and I'm very happy with that decision. Sam, what do you want people to know about what it's like to work in this space? Yeah, I love working out of the space. There's so many big windows and plants and beautiful artwork. It's been a really great place for me to be, be able to focus and get my work done. Yeah, and you, you do this thing called community here. It's a very mm-hmm. friendly space. How do, you, how do you foster that? Yeah, we have a number of weekly networking events for all of our members from Taco Tuesday to Breakfast Club, go to lunch on Friday, happy hour, lots of ways for folks to meet each other. And it is a, a place that I found that is great for collaboration. You've seen it happen firsthand. Absolutely. It's always really cool to have a new member join and immediately see them connecting with other members in the space and collaborating on new ideas and creating really great projects. And it always seems that Advent's evolving, growing, improving the experience, trying to do something new, keep up with the times. Uh, can you give an example of something you've done in 2020 that uh, helps uh, improve that experience? Yeah, we actually launched a new series in January. It's a program for our members to be able to share their skills and knowledge. It's the every Tuesday at 4.30, and it's open for all of our members and for the whole Charlotte community. So Sam, if someone wants to find out more about the benefits of working in an empowering community such as this that advocates for diversity and values the combination of curiosity, innovation, and collaboration, which is what I've seen, how do they find you? Yeah, you can find out everything about us at adventcoworking.com. Hey, thanks, Sam. Thanks. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show, please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, or the podcast platform of your choice, because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. We're back uh, with Patrice Gopo, author of All the Colors We Will See, Reflections on Barriers, Brokenness, and Finding Our Way. And Patrice, since you are a uh, not only a writer, but you teach essay, yeah. I, I thought while I had you, you know, Trapped here in the studio with me, we 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 talk a little bit about uh, talk essays. Talk essays. So um, let's let's first off, and you've you've spoken about essays in a number of different concepts. But let's just start off first with a few basics. Uh, 
about writing essays. Uh, you you kind of came up with this outline you shared with me um, that had different parts of it. The first part was sort of finding the material. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that issue? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I think we begin with writing as we find the material. I think a great example was when I was driving past Eastwood you saw, Mall. You saw the mall. There's being, the material. Yeah, being <laughs> torn down. And I think the thing in terms of finding the material that I like to encourage people to think about is be curious. Be be a curious person in terms of why is that happening like that right now? Why am I feeling like this? What What did I see today that was unusual or that made me pause for an extra moment? I I sometimes think as writers, we feel as though we can only write about big things that happen mm-hmm. in our lives. And I think it, there's absolutely space for us to write about the large, significant things that happen. And sometimes in the writing about just the things that we observe, that actually leads us into the maybe larger, significant things that we may have experienced in our lives. But we don't always know that for sure until yeah. we just start writing. So I, I think that's part of this idea of finding the material. I think other ways of finding the material are just taking inventory of your life. So I, I do want to specify when I talk about essays, I particularly am thinking about personal essays. That's the area that I have uh, that I have focused on. And that's what I know best is writing personal essays. So these are often pieces that are drawn from our own personal stories. What do you say to the person who says, well, I don't think I have enough interesting in my past to write personal essays. Right. And so I, I think I would just say that's, I believe that's not true. You would challenge them on that. I would challenge them on that. (laughs) And uh, yes, I I think that is definitely not true that there's a wonderful quote, which I am going to forget who says it, but it basically is the idea that anyone who survived childhood has enough material to write <laughs> for their whole lives. And yeah. I think the reality is that we sometimes in our world have almost given higher value to certain kinds of stories. And part of the work that I do, I seek to push back against that idea that certain stories have greater value in society. I believe everybody's stories have value. And I particularly feel it important that marginalized voices, voices that we don't tend to listen to as much, have space to air those stories, which often don't get brought to the light in the same type of way. Patrice, one of the items in your sort of talking points here that you, when you're talking essay, is trailing after the material. Mm -hmm. And you've told me before the podcast that that's one of the areas that people really gravitate toward and like to talk about. Why is that? And what are we talking about when you say trailing after the material? Yeah, so I think of trailing after the material as kind of doing that deep dive into understanding the material, trying to figure out that we are in fact writing to discover something new about ourselves, something new about the way in which we see the world, something new about how we interpreted something that may have happened in the past. And so this is the place where I really encourage people to press into that curiosity and to think of writing as a discovery process, that we are not necessarily writing with the idea that we necessarily know how all the connections fit together, what it all means, and that we will in then we will then continue to interrogate our material, interrogate what it is we're seeing, try to understand it. So I think a really good example of this is in that essay about the dead malls. There's that line in there that says, who cries over a mall? That's the question, right? That is the question. Right. It's and that's the question. That's what you're searching for. I, right. It's yeah, searching yeah. for why is that? Why am yeah. I doing that? Why, you know, and that, it, it, 
create so much more. And at the end of the day with that particular essay, I did discover something new about, I think, myself, but also about the nature of my parents' divorce, things I didn't feel like I understood about mm. them before, that I left that piece with greater compassion towards mm. who they were and who they are and towards that particular experience. So finding the material, we might see an image, we might have a reflection on a moment that mm -hmm. we remember. Trailing after the material, asking the questions. Yes. How do they connect to what you've seen? Right, exactly. And then your third point is when you get down to exploring the material. Right. Talk about that. Yeah, so exploring the material. So this is where I feel as though this is when we start to think about scenes and summary and reflection, which scenes being the actual moment we might remember, the moment we might live, the moment we might experience. Then we think a little bit about summary, which are maybe uh, – well, I'm going to use the word in the definition, but summarizing <laughs> things that may have happened to connect the scenes together. But then this is a really important part of writing an essay is the reflective stance that happens. And so the narrator is actually thinking on the page and starting to make some of these connections. And I feel like this is part of that aspect of exploring the material is now the narrator is trying to unpack why is she crying over them all? Mm. Not necessarily directly answering that, but just kind of going at it, reflecting on these scenes that she might be creating, reflecting on the experiences. And I think this is also the place in which you may want to bring in forms of research. Yeah, that, you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah that yeah. you might also bring in research. And research can happen in multiple kinds of ways. I think there's research that we think about, like searching for information online, trying to understand. I, there's an essay I have in here that I think we're going to get to in a minute where I am talking about plantains and bananas. And mm -hmm. I use that as a metaphor for thinking about my sister and me and our varying experiences growing up as the children of immigrants. But I did a lot of research there to understand a plantain and a banana. And I will just say to your readers, which I mispronounced as plantain. No, you, you are fine to pronounce it plantain. <laughs> I'm just going to say to all the people listening that yeah. Jamaicans typically pronounce it plantain. Okay, and I'm good, just going with good. the way that I have said this word my whole life, but don't that's, feel like you have to say it like me. That's right. um, but that would have been research that comes in there that I am understanding the nature of plantain plants and banana plants, how they're alike, how they're different. So that's one type of research. Another type of research might be going back to your family members and asking them questions about this period of time in that you might be writing about, trying to understand it a little bit better. So that's another type of research, maybe interviewing friends or family. Uh, another type of research that I think happens is you might go back to your own archives. So going back to your yearbooks or going back to your old journals. That's something I'm working on something a little bit or I was working on something a couple months ago and I reread a bunch of my old journals and just kind of trying to understand who was I at that particular moment in time? So these are all different forms of research, but that's part of this idea of exploring the material is that, you know, you start thinking about your scene, your summary reflection. You also start thinking about bringing in forms of research into your work. Now, are we writing yet? Or, or oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm writing the whole time. Okay, so, yeah, so, absolutely. so you're getting all this down on paper. Oh, yeah. And then the last two, two points you talk about making meaning of the material 
and elevating the material. Is that part of the polishing and the restructuring and kind of getting it the way it needs to be? To, yes. Yeah. I would say that that is more what you would see there is kind of some of that polishing, restructuring, that kind of thing. So in those spaces, you might start thinking more about what is the structure for this essay. Mm -hmm. So I know we keep going back to this essay, What Remains, the one about the dead malls and my parents' mm -hmm. divorce. But I think it's a good example of one where I didn't feel like the structure truly presented itself until much later in the essay. I think sometimes you will naturally know the structure of a piece. You know that you're going to be moving chronologically uh, through a particular story that you want to tell. But other essays, they... They might be braided essays where you have a storyline that's happening over. I'm sorry, listeners, you can't see that, but a storyline <laughs> right that might be left. happening <laughs> over to the right, and another storyline right. that might be happening over to the left, and yeah. then you're kind of bringing those storylines together. Yeah. So that's another type of structure that you might see. Uh, so you so, do that, you do that. I noticed you do that a lot in your essays. You'll you'll start out in one area. Then you might go back in time, and then you might, or you might move to another scene. Right. Yeah, and then I do. and then you kind of circle back. To right. The, yeah. I do that, and one of the reasons I personally really like doing that is, I think if you were to take a moment and think about how we as human beings think about our lives, think about our memories, I think it's rare that we are chronologically living our memories, that we are living the stories. I think, in fact, we are much more moving around in time, that we are making connections between things that seem disconnected across time that we do that. So that's why I tend to like to not necessarily ground myself that it must move chronologically, but I sometimes do do that if that's the best way to tell the story. So I think the best example of a chronological movement would be the essay in this book about living in Charlotte in the aftermath of the Charleston massacre. So it's called An Abundance of Impossible Things. And that essay very much moves chronologically from the spring of 2015 to Christmas of 2015. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, the essay begins with this line that says, in the spring prior to the Charleston church massacre, or Charleston massacre, it says. And so even though I'm beginning in spring, I'm already setting up the tension of what is to come. We don't actually have to wait till the summer to know that that is part of the tension of this particular essay. Well, we could sit here and talk essay writing, you know, for another hour probably. Yes, certainly. <laughs> you, now, you, you teach um, at Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, I right? do, yes. You teach essay there. You also spoke to the Charlotte Writers Club, right? Yes, yeah, and, I have. And, and you spoke at, at that time on the personal essay as a vehicle for social change. Mm -hmm. Do you find that this form of writing is a way for moving people's thoughts in the community in a certain direction? Absolutely, Linus. I believe it has the power to do that. I don't necessarily think that every essay must be a vehicle for social change, but you had asked me earlier about what gives me comfort, what gives me hope, uh, and you asked maybe writing, and, and I was talking about, yes, I believe that there's power in writing words. I believe there's power in sharing stories, and I feel that in the sharing of stories about things that maybe we are not necessarily considering actively in our culture or maybe listening more to voices that have historically been oppressed or marginalized, this is the way in which we can definitely enter into letting these stories be 
a vehicle for shifting people's mindsets. Mm-hmm. And and I don't want to say you you can only do that if you are a person who might be a person of color or you might uh, be part of another group that has historically been marginalized. I feel that we all have an opportunity to use our stories in a way that can speak into the things that we are concerned about in life, that can speak into the ways in which we fundamentally would like to see society shift. And I think part of that is becoming even self-aware of what the issues might be that you as a writer might be concerned about. And that just in the naming of that awareness that you, I believe, become more observant of maybe how these falling autumn leaves might in fact connect to some other area that you are concerned about. Yeah, and this won't come out until the leaves are totally off the trees and everybody's looking at the sticks on the trees. But I did see this morning falling leaves and I thought, wow, that's yeah. nice. You right? Yeah. yeah. But I wanna I wanna spring off of this just a second. You told me two things uh when we were talking ahead of the podcast. Uh one, writing is the point, not telling the story. And two, don't tell people what to think. Share with them what it was like for you. Yes. Yeah. So so that's sort of a way to change minds, but in a different structure. Right? I think so. And here's what I'll say. I think there's absolutely space for people to write pieces that are telling people, <laughs> right. I think you should think like right, that. Right. I don't <laughs> want to indicate that that is yeah. not an option, but I it's do It's called feel, script writing for cable TV. You know? Well, I, <laughs> we, can, we can have a longer discussion. I just want to affirm that yeah. I think there certainly is place for that. But I am just speaking to the type of personal essay writing that I do, that mm. I really, uh, I try to stay away from necessarily saying, this is what I think you should think about what I have just shared and instead offer the story in which people can then hold the story and they have to somehow make sense of that story that I've shared. That's just the particular angle in which I approach thinking about uh, writing for social change. Now that said, there are times when I have written opinion pieces that are much more direct, that much more clearly say, I disagree with this for these reasons or so. And I, so I I just want to affirm, I think there's space for that, but I also think there can be power in sharing a story without necessarily saying that this is what now needs to happen. This is what I want you to take from this. This is, this is how you need to now think about life. So Patrice, we're now going to shift to the concept of identity. Um, You've got a piece here called on degrees of blackness and being me. You're not going to read the entire essay. You're going to read a little portion of it. Um, Anything you want to say to set it up? Yeah, sure. I will just share that this essay is really considering what it means to grow up as a black woman in this country in a space where we often create very, very narrow categories for what it means to be a black person and what happens when you don't necessarily fit some of those typical categories that we have created for Uh, being a black person. And so I am just examining in this essay about what it means to be me, knowing that there are certain qualities and traits about my experience that don't necessarily mesh well with the maybe more traditional narrative that is often pushed. And ultimately, I'm pushing back against this idea because I do feel very strongly that when we reduce a people group to a very narrow story, we're in fact taking dignity away from that people group in the same way that if we reduce an individual to just a sliver of their story, 
we're taking dignity from that person. And so my, my hope with this piece is that we recognize that there are in fact an abundance of black stories within the story of being a black American. Years later, I asked my father about coming to America and about his high school. I asked about the other black students. Did you fit in? My father looked at me and said something like, I looked like them, but I didn't know what it was to be them. The borders of blackness paint an image of a historical state of flux. The words change across time, an attempt to capture perhaps a concept that cannot find containment. Colored once upon a time, a grandmother figure used to watch me when I was a child. She wore her grayish white hair pulled back from the light brown of her face. She took unshelled nuts and used them as the heads for tiny dolls she made to amuse me during the long afternoons. Sometimes she watched her daily soaps while she brushed and braided my hair. She would say, don't look, turn your head. So I couldn't catch a glimpse of adults living their sordid lives. And my grandma, like Sitter, used the word colored to refer to a black person, a term long out of vogue and that, I now realize, situated her childhood deep in the past. By then, the use of the word colored had all but vanished, and the ensuing years of discord around terms such as Negro and Afro-American had dissipated into the country's general embrace of the word black to describe my babysitter, my family, and me. We were still a few years from the late 80s, early 90s adoption of African-American. Cultural experts and politicians would argue for the term, saying that we also come from somewhere, just like German-Americans and Chinese-Americans. During the 1970 United States Census, the government classified people whose heritage stretched back to India as white. When I learned this, I began to consider the permeable nature of the categories my country created. In a previous census, this group had been called Hindu, and in the 1980 census, they became Asian Indian, where they remain. The same year the US Census would have considered me to be half white, the 1970 questionnaire listed Negro or Black. By 2000, African American had been added to this category. And Landis, I think I should just say here, just to clarify a little bit of that final paragraph, this is a something that comes up in the book too, is that my family actually has a multiracial heritage as well. So both of my grandfathers would be of well, according to what I just read, Asian Indian descent, but in Jamaica, they would have been referred to as East Indian descent. So that's part of my cultural lineage as well. And that's what I'm referring to in that part where I talk about the ways in which Asian Indians are classified on the census. Yeah, and Patrice, it seems like um, over the years, as times change, there is this effort to sort of redefine groups or how, mm -hmm. we, how we call certain groups yes. of people. And it becomes a difficult issue because some people who don't under stand the need for change, bristle at it and call it political correctness. Mm -hmm. And others uh, might see it as sensitivity. But as as someone who's not in a particular group, I'm, I'm the white guy, right? So if I'm looking at other groups and I'm trying to be sure that I'm sensitive and calling them by the, you know, the right, whatever the right cat, I'm not sure. You, you see what I'm saying? I'm trying to figure out uh, how do we know in this day and time what the right even if it's right to be classifying, you know, what the right 
thing to say is in these circumstances. Is it black or is it African-American? It's certainly not colored anymore. It's certainly not, you know, what it was many, many years ago. Um, and that's just, you, you could take Indian and Native American, and, and there's the change that goes on there. Um, but for the person that wants to be sensitive to these changes, how do we navigate that? Yeah, absolutely. So I just want to, I will just push back slightly with something you said at the beginning of your statement that I think you said the idea that you're not part of a category. Well, I am. And and that's wrong because I'm I'm part of the normative category, the one that others are up against. And that's why I don't see necessarily what other people see, right? I'm, I'm a well, what, am, what is my category then? Well, I mean, I would just say, I think on the census, you have a category I'm, I'm that white. you, you yeah. would check. Right, so right, right, I think right. I'm just trying to You're indicate right. that right. we we all, in different ways, get classified. But they hadn't changed cat- that category in a long time. I, but yeah. I think they have, at times, changed who gets to be in that category. Ah, so, okay. you know, as that I was sense. giving in this example, they have yeah. changed who who is who gets in to this category. Yes, yeah. and so I think... You know, there is a lot of politics around categorization of human beings across the world and in our country and Hmm. the ways in which that uh, it's just a significantly more complicated issue. Obviously, because I I stumbled over the questions as I was trying to ask. And that's and that's fine. I I just want to add that I I think in a way that this idea that a white person might not be part of a category is in itself a way of creating hierarchy because mm. it's like, well, I'm the regular, I'm the ordinary, and then there's the others. And so I think I'm just trying to push back against that a little bit. And I didn't yeah. even feel that that is what you were saying in that moment, but no, I but just that, want that's, to speak that's, to that's that a idea. Good, that's a good point because everybody comes from a certain category, right? I'm in a category, and, and you grow up in a category, and but now these categories are changing and people are trying to make sense of you know how people are being right. classified, and you know a lot of times white people have blinders on. You know you right. grow, you grow up in a right. certain area and you don't see what other people see. So and and in it, many ways the way society works is that oftentimes people within the dominant category. So let's say white people at this point that often do not necessarily have to interact with the fact that they are part of a category. And so I think that that often happens in our society, too, whereas I think about, you know, a a black child uh, from early on, they are interacting with the idea that they belong to a particular category. See, we had a little social experiment here on Charlotte Rue's podcast (laughs) to to illustrate a point. So, But to go back to your question, (laughs) though, about thinking about this idea of what is the correct terminology, I think that was what you're saying. Sure, trying to do it. Yeah, yeah, that's my question. That's what I meant to say. Right. So thinking. (laughs) about that particular question. I think yeah. one of the things I would add here to this conversation is part of the ways in which I believe we learn how people would like to be identified is knowing people who, in fact, are part of these various categories. Right. And in that way, you, you, you have relationships with people to understand how it is. So I've thought it's interesting... I refer to myself as a black person, and through this podcast, you've been referring to me as African-American, which is totally fine, but I feel as though even in this interaction, you'll probably leave it having this idea that I would refer to myself not necessarily as an African-American, which I do write about a little bit in the book. 
So I think there is that value in our world interacting with each other so that we can recognize those things. I think there is also value in asking a person how they would like to be sure, identified. Sure. I think that, and here's something that I think is tricky, um, but I think is probably important too, is that we become people who are willing to get it wrong and to live with what might happen by not necessarily getting it right, that we that we can get it wrong and then correct for it. And I think sometimes we feel like we can never say anything because we are so terrified of messing something up. And I think there is value in us as human beings just entering into that space where we're just not going to always know everything all the time and, um, and to be okay to live with the, I guess, consequences of not always knowing mm. everything all the time. All right, Patrice, a little riding life segment here. We've done we've done some of your riding life. We've gone along here, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in with a few more things here. Uh, so, uh, what influences your writing? What influences my writing? Huh. I think I will say this. I think lots of things influence my writing. I think one of the important things that is part of my almost daily practice is that I like to take a walk each morning because I feel as though it is a time where I am not necessarily part of the words, but I am able to just be ruminating on whatever it is I might be ruminating on. And so it's in that space that just being in the natural world, I think really speaks into what I'm doing. And I think maybe almost primes me better to start connecting things that I would like to be trying to find connections between, or maybe just being observant of what might be happening out mm. there in the world. So I think that is definitely uh, something that really influences do, my Do you work. carry a notebook? I don't, but I do have my phone with me. Do you and ever I talk use, into it with ideas? Or? Uh, I usually don't talk into it, but I do have the notes section on my phone. Okay. So I will often take notes on oh. um, on my phone. If, if something presents itself, I... I honestly, I'll say I try hard not to just stop and take notes as I'm walking because in a way, I think it takes me a little bit out of the zone. But every now and then there'll be this one perfect sentence that comes while you're walking and, you know, you want to get it down so you don't forget it. And where so, do you do most of your writing? I I do my writing everywhere. I I tell people that I started writing when my oldest, she is 10 now, I started writing when she was a newborn. And I felt as though my writing life developed in the midst of fitting it into raising a small child. And so I can write anywhere. I will sometimes write. Even with the screaming baby. I, right? yep. I know. And I am so serious. I will my, I have two girls now and they will be running around the kitchen island and I have an idea for what I'm doing. So I am just standing over the kitchen island with my notebook as they're doing whatever it is. And I can, I really just zone it all out so that I can work on that. Now I will say that is not the most ideal right, right. <laughs> form. That certainly yeah. is not. I have been on several different writing retreats and it is amazing to me what can happen when you just have that focused time. But what I like to say is that I don't feel like I have to have this focused time quiet, solitude focused in order to work on something that I'm mm. working on. Because I do feel like I learned to integrate my writing life into just my ordinary life. And so I'm able to do that. Now, that said, at this point in life, you know, my kids are off to school. I do have some quieter moments. I will often just write 
you know, in my bedroom, sitting mm. on my bed. What are you enjoying most about the writing process? You know, I think the thing that I love most in the writing process is that moment when you realize that you have figured out what this essay is actually about. So there's this idea when you're writing of the surface story and the beneath the surface story. And it takes a couple drafts, many drafts often, to determine what the beneath the surface story kind is. Kind of like the plot and the theme, right? Yeah, the, Kind the, of, the, a the little, yeah, yeah, I think so. There, um, There's a great book by Vivian Gornick, which I've actually only read pieces of, but it's called The Situation and the Story. So the situation is the actual event that happened I saw a mall being torn down. Right. Uh, and then the story is what everything that's going on beneath the fact that I saw a mall being torn down. And I feel as though that beneath the surface story, it doesn't readily present itself. That's part of the investigative discovery process is figuring out what the beneath the story is. And when I figure that out, it's like a golden moment. Yeah. So what gives you the most satisfaction when you put a piece out into the world? And what about those times when maybe people react differently than you thought they might react to what you've written? Yeah. So start with the happy point, the most satisfaction about putting it out in the world. Right. So I'll, maybe I'll just circle back mm-hmm. to my book on this one because I feel as though that's where I probably had the most reactions okay. is with my book. <laughs> so when I think about having put all the colors we will see out into the world, I feel like the most satisfying moments of that are when – there's two things. The first one would be when I receive emails from people who tell me that they feel less alone in the world because they've read my book, that – they feel like there's someone out there who understands them a little bit better because of that. And that, for me, is very powerful to think that I these are perfect strangers, and yet there's something in what I have shared of my story that is going to enable them to stand taller in their own story. The other thing that I think feels extremely satisfying about my work in the world is I feel like I have created an artifact for my children that um, I I didn't necessarily think about as I was writing this, but as I've done this, I, I feel as though I've done something very powerful and given them this gift, having written this book for them. So, so those are pieces I think feel very satisfying about putting my work out there in the world. Uh, and then thinking about maybe people who may not respond as positively, I will just be completely honest here, Landis, and say... That's what we want, it's complete honesty. Yeah, so I honestly, (laughs) I do not interact a whole lot with reviews of my book or, uh, you know, those types of things. So I I don't feel like I know a whole lot about how people might not positively be responding to my work. I, I know it exists out there, but I just feel... For me, it's not super helpful for mm-hmm. me to spend a lot of time engaging in those spaces. All right, last writing life questions. What, what would you tell your younger writing self uh, something valuable you've learned and that you carry around with you now as a writer that you wish your younger writing self had known? Yeah. When I think about my younger writing self, 
I feel as though I would want to tell her to trust what's happening, to just trust the process of growing as a writer. I feel very strongly in the writing life. It can be very easy for us to compare ourselves to other people and other writers and the progress other writers are making. And I, I mean, I'm a human being, so I've have that I've had those experiences as well and I I definitely feel like if I could go back to my younger self I would say to her to trust what's happening in your own writing life trust the writer that you are becoming and and also to just keep working on your craft um that at the end of the day that's the thing I come back to is I love writing and part of why I love writing is that I have grown as a writer and I think it's important that we continue to just keep growing as writers. Mm. And it's made a difference in your life? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So absolutely. let's talk Let's talk about that uh, Jamaican plant fruit. What is it? Is oh, it? a plantain? <laughs> yes, a plantain. <laughs> yeah. Let's, you got a little read, quick read here. Oh, at, yeah. At the end here. A plantain is not a banana, but they are close. They both share common ancestry with the same ancient plant. The seeds of modern varieties are sterile. Instead of sowing seeds to yield new fruit, immature suckers are taken from the parent and planted elsewhere. Just after I finished graduate school, my mother took me to visit Jamaica. During that trip, I told my uncle in Kingston that I was Jamaican. He shook his head no. I laughed, but I think this gesture directed to my sister would have hurt her. When my friend with a similar complexion to mine told me that she didn't really think of me as being black, a great sadness gripped me. I think a lesser sadness would have gripped my sister. Perhaps we are both whole and yet both incomplete. If my sister missed out, I missed out too. That last line, I've, I've been thinking about that, you know, both whole and yet both incomplete. What, what, what are we getting at there? Producer? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the idea that I was hoping to bring to the surface is that, yes, we are, we are both full of who we are. We are our identities. And yet perhaps there are connections that are in a way missing from us that we are not holding on to, that we are not necessarily grasping or integrating into our lives. And so, so I wanted there to be that uh, kind of separateness between this idea that we are, we are good, we're fine, who we are is beautiful, and yet at the same time, there could still be elements that we long for. And I think it speaks to this idea, which shows up in other ways in this book, of satisfaction with where we are, who we are, and yet a longing for something else too that um, exists. And I think that's what I really wanted to convey in this moment. Well, listeners, you can uh, find out a little bit more about who Patrice is in the show notes because we're going to have links there to her website and to, uh, to her book and some other uh, information about her. So, uh, Patrice, I want to thank you for coming on the show and sharing your writing with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's yeah. been a pleasure being here. Well, that's it for today. 
another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.